Hello and a warm welcome to Accommodate Unplugged on Wednesday, the 4th of August 2021. Terry Sheehan is stateside and I'm Jeremy Hawkins in London. Well, we now know that last quarter the US economy moved back above its pre-pandemic peak, while Eurozone GDP at least returned to positive growth. However, more recently, there's been some signs that the global recovery might be starting to cool a little as the damaging effects of raw material shortages are compounded by the spreading Delta variant and the squeeze on real incomes caused by rapidly rising consumer prices. Still, for now, it remains the labour market that seems to have the largest say in what happens to monetary policy. And of course, on Friday, we get the US employment report for July. So Terry, what's the expectation for that? And does the fact that the US total output is now above its pre-crisis level have any implications for what the Fed might be doing? Well, um, interestingly, this morning we got uh, the ADP National Employment Report, which Mm -hmm. was about half the size that markets expected. Uh, This is often considered a precursor to what we're going to see for private payroll growth in the U.S. in the Friday Employment Report. Uh, So this probably has downgraded somewhat um, expectations that we've seen. But the two don't always match up terribly well, and sometimes misses are huge. So I think we can expect a good, strong uh, employment report on Friday, but maybe not as strong as current surveys would indicate. Um, We're probably going to see good wage growth. We may see expansion of hours a little bit as businesses in a shortage of workers Uh, increase hours for the ones they have. Um, Overall, it should be a solid report, but maybe not as much as people had originally hoped. Okay. Can I ask you, is there a sense, I know this is kind of perhaps, you know, put your finger in the air, so to speak, but (laughs) is there a sense of how far employment has to rise or unemployment to fall, uh, you know, to actually start to push the Fed towards tapering? Well, Vice Chair Richard Clarida was speaking about that this morning, and he actually was a little bit hawkish sounding, although very cautiously so. Um, But um, he was pointing out that in when you have an economic recovery, you'll tend to get these big increases in productivity and such. But the labor force will recovery tends to lag. So mm-hmm. um, he he was in agreement that we haven't seen quite the substantive further progress that the Fed is hoping for. Um, but um, at least for him, it sounds like he's pulled in his expectation of rate hikes and the taper a bit uh, just based on the fact that the economic recovery is strong and expectations are for it to progress more quickly than originally thought. And also because inflation is somewhat above target and may not fall nearer target as quickly as they'd hoped. Oh, OK. That's interesting. Um, actually, well, on that, look, let me ask you a question. We had some comments the other day from one of the uh, European Central Bank's executive board members, uh, Luis de Guindos, and he suggested that Europe's economy will be back to normal once it's returned to its pre-pandemic growth path rather than pre-pandemic levels. So effectively, he's presumably saying then that you know, GDP is going to be have 
have to be perhaps significantly higher than it was before the COVID struck, before he thinks anyway, or this ECB perhaps in general, believes that it's where it should be, which clearly from the ECB's point of view means that the idea of any tightening is even further down the road. What, what's the Fed's sort of view in terms of you know, levels of GDP versus pre-pandemic versus levels of GDP versus where the economy should be now at this stage if the growth path had continued as previously? Well, I know that uh, Chair Powell in his recent press briefing noted that the economy has gone undergone some fundamental changes in terms of just you know where people are employed, how they're employed, the increase in automation, the changes in processes. Uh, so the the ability to compare the economy now and then may be imperfect. Uh, so I think there'll be lo- what they'll be looking for is, um, and a, as this minister said, um, getting back on the path of growth as opposed to necessarily seeing um, the same sort of sectors as driving mm-hmm. growth. Mm. Okay. All right. And talking about promoting growth, the uh, the infrastructure bill. Uh, there's been so much talk about on and off or I lose track now. Um, wh- where do we stand on that? Well, it looks like the Senate will um, come to an agreement on it, and it looks like it will eventually pass. Um, Right now, the Senate is supposed to be on its summer recess, but the leadership has kept it um, in Washington to try and hash this out. Uh, But the House is also on summer recess right now. So um, it probably is going to need a few more weeks before it actually passes, but it looks like it will pass. Okay, and I guess spending inevitably these days equals um, extra borrowing. So dare I ask it, where do we stand on the dreaded debt ceiling now? Uh, Well, the debt ceiling um, reset happened as expected on August 1st. It's stuck at 28.4 trillion. And um, there is no movement on that front right now. I think most of the White House's efforts are focused on getting this infrastructure bill done. Um, The Treasury has invoked what they call their extraordinary measures, which is a routine set of things that they do. Um, They suspend investment in certain government funds and such Mm -hmm. um, to avoid breaching the debt limit. And for the moment, that's it. Uh, It's probably going to drag on a few weeks. We may see some changes in the auction schedule if it drags on for very long. Uh, But given that it looks like the White House has been able to get through a infrastructure bill, it speaks well for the political climate that will allow them to get the debt limit handled again uh, without another government shutdown. So it's not a case of looking at the economy calendar and finding there aren't any numbers there anymore. <laughs> Good news. OK, thanks, Terry. Anything else from your side? Uh, well, um, a lot of what's been sort of the chatter out there right now is will Chair Powell be mm-hmm. offered another four years as chair of the Federal Reserve? Yep. Um, and his rival, so to speak, has been. Uh, Governor Lael Brainerd for this. Um, I think a lot of that is more speculation in the press than um, actual rivalry between the two. Um, Lael Brainerd certainly would be an excellent 
chief of the Federal Reserve. Uh, there's no question of that. Uh, but will Biden actually renominate Powell in order to maintain a level of stability uh, for markets? And he he was originally an Obama appointee, and he has certainly done a good job under very trying circumstances mm-hmm. as chair of the Fed. So there is no reason not to think that he's qualified to do it for another four years. But it's the situation is, in fact, more complicated than just Powell uh, needing to either be renominated or not, is um, the vice chair of supervision's term ends in October. And although his term as governor, uh, this is Randall Quarles, continues on for a number of years after that, the chances are if he's not renominated as the vice chair of supervision, he would leave the Fed. And therefore, there would be a second vacancy fairly soon. And the other thing is that vice or, or vice chair Richard Clarida's term as vice chair runs out early next, runs out um, in about a year, but his term as governor runs out in January. So if he's not renominated, we're also going to be looking at an opening for vice chair. So there's a potential for a lot of changes at the top for the Fed, uh, and it will be interesting to see what names are going to be raised for these jobs as well. And this, of course, is a time when at least potentially we could actually see Fed policies begin to change anyway. Yes. So this is, yeah, okay, no, I think that's going to make it really interesting, isn't it? Yes, it is, especially since um, it would be, we're in a position with the Senate where it's going to be hard to get any nominee through, uh, but um, there are, you know, plenty of chances now for the Biden administration to put its stamp on the Fed. Mm. Watch this space, as they say. Excellent. Thanks yes. for that, Terry. Um, OK, then, cross to uh, my part of the world, so to speak. Uh, what do we know about Europe? Well, last week we had the uh, our first look at second quarter GDP for the Eurozone as well. Um, it's actually a little bit stronger than expected, at 2% on the quarter. So at an annualised rate, so US terms, we're talking about growth, what, about 8.2%. So actually, for once, somewhat stronger than we saw on, on Terry's side. Um, but that said, in contrast to the US for the Eurozone, despite growth exceeding expectations in the second quarter, quarter. Total output was still the best part of 3% below where it was um, at the end of 2019, so just before the coronavirus arrived. So there's still an output gap there, which authorities want to close, and clearly is one reason why the ECB remains um, so dovish. Um, what else can we say? Well, within amongst the composition, I guess one of the other sort of aspects worth noting is the fact that the big two countries, France and Germany, both underperformed. So quarter-on-quarter growth in France was just 0.9%, which is really nothing to write home about at all. Germany at least picked up to 1.5%, but even that was below the overall Eurozone average. So really, uh, the respectability, if you like, of the the headline growth itself really came down to a number of the smaller countries and also the other two of the big four, Italy, which is up 2.7%, and um, Spain, which was 2.8%. Now, I guess more importantly, looking ahead, if anything, I guess some of these surveys
surveys now are starting to hint that we may already be starting to reach the peak period of growth, you know, as, as we start to emerge from the COVID crisis. Um, the PMI itself, the Composite Output Index, we had confirmed this morning for July, that was up at 59.5, which is the highest we've seen since 2006, which is good news. But the mm-hmm. correlation between it and um, GDP was particularly poor in the first quarter. It hopelessly overestimated GDP growth then. And clearly there's going to be some similar risks, I suspect, uh, to the July data as well. And looking around some of these other surveys, national surveys out, out of the likes of ANSI in France or the IFO survey in Germany, they both found some decel- well, some weakening in overall sentiment. And indeed, even with the, the PMI itself, it noted that uh, business opt- optimism about the year ahead was its low lowest level in some four months. So I think you know, put it all together, by and large, it looks, yes, the Eurozone economy is doing okay. It's certainly recovering. But there's growing question marks now, I think, about what the rest of this year is going to look like. And in part, of course, that really just comes back down to, obviously, the ongoing shortages of raw materials, supply side issues, et cetera, et cetera. But also this spreading Delta variant, which is becoming quite an issue now as far as Europe's concerned. As we talked last week, a number of countries have actually started to re impose various restrictions, which inevitably will hit the growth side of thing. Also, I guess, increasing the likelihood of no change in ECB policy for some considerable while. Um, the inflation numbers, which were looked a bit odd last week, I must say, these were flash numbers for January. Now, the headline rate actually moved up to 2.2%, which was surprisingly strong. And of course, takes it above the ECB's new 2.0% symmetric target level. But the core rate actually fell from 0.9% down to just 0.7%. Now, there are going to be a lot of technical dis- distortions, I think, in this, particularly regarding summer sales, which probably helped to bias the number down, particularly the core number uh, this July. And it may well be reversed once we get into August time. But until we actually get that confirmed, you know, the bottom line is that unlike a lot of countries at the moment around the world, core inflation, as far as the eurozone is concerned, remains extremely low and clearly well below where the ECB would like to see it. Um, Talking of ECB, or at least central banks, the other uh, focus or main focus perhaps for a lot of Europe this week will be the Bank of England on Thursday. I think as mentioned last week, it looked as if there was a growing feeling that we could see the the early end to quantitative easing from the Bank of England this week. Um, A number of commentators, or certainly at least two of the senior government officials, sorry, Bank of England officials, I should say, had kind of intimated that they'd be voting to finish quantitative easing this week. And that would be what a subtract about 50 billion sterling or so of potential quantitative easing from uh, from the actual stock at the end of the day. Um, but since then, we've had some others coming out really suggesting, well, just a minute, we need, really, really need to wait to see how the economy is going to respond to some of the withdrawal of fiscal stimulus. The furlough program in particular is due to be ended what, at the end of September time. We want to see how that um, impacts the economy before we start doing anything. So I guess it's kind of a sort of, it's, we're going to see a reaction to whatever happens on Thursday now. It would appear overall, I think, that the consensus is that the bank won't do anything. I'm certain it won't be any in terms of interest rates or anything like that. But it really is a case of whether or not they're going to you know, finish quantitative easing now or continue with it at the current rate. I mean, it looks as if there's going to be no change, but it is certainly something which could happen. And the other big thing to note um, on Thursday, and again, this is just a potential event 
event rather than guaranteed. Um, quant forward guidance with regards to uh, quantitative easing and interest rates. Under Mark Carney, the previous Bank of England governor before Andrew Bailey took over, there was going to be no quantitative tightening and that is actually shrinking the balance sheet. So you know, actually withdrawing liquidity from the system until uh, bank rate reached one and a half percent. And bank rate, of course, is still at 0.10 percent. So it's got an awful long way to go on that basis before the bank's actually going to start shrinking its balance sheet. However, Bailey seems to want to move quantitative tightening roughly at the same time as it moves interest rates. So it suggests that at some point we could see the quantitative forward guidance being revised, whereby quantitative tightening will come about um, round about the same time as interest rates start to go up. So that would mean that the interest rate threshold would have to be moved much closer to this current 0.10% bank rate. They may not announce anything regards this on Thursday, um, but they do have a new monetary policy report, the quarterly report, which updates what the bank's thinking about the economy and so forth. So it would be an opportunity for them to do that. But we'll certainly be getting news on that at some point, And it's, I guess, something to be alert for uh, once we get into Thursday itself. Um, elsewhere amongst some of the countries I look at, I should mention uh, Canada, um, in line with the US, of course, we'll get the uh, Canadian labour market report on Friday. That's, uh, I must say, spreads are quite wide in terms of market call on this. But you know, the midpoint probably is around about 150,000 increase in payrolls. And that would be after almost a 231,000 increase um, in the previous month back in June. Uh, that would be enough then to reduce the unemployment rate from 7.8% down to 7.4%. Now, that would still leave, if it's correct, um, employment almost 2 million below where it was back in February last year before COVID struck. But nonetheless, it would be another strong set of numbers and probably leave the Bank of Canada on course for additional tapering of its quantitative easing program. Its next meeting is on September uh, the 8th. It could come then or possibly the meeting after that. Um, also of note, I should mention the GDP numbers we had out of Canada last week. These are for May. Of course, they have monthly data there. That was down 0.4%, which doesn't look too clever. But that, of course, was during the, the semi-lockdown period introduced when the COVID cases started rising very sharply again. And the statistics guys are forecasting an increase of 0.7% for June. Now, if that's right, that would equate with a 2.5% um, adjusted annual annualised rate for the second quarter as a whole. And that would compare with the monetary policy reports call of 2.0%. So in other words, the economy outperforming the central bank's expectations, which again should uh, be seen as increasing the likelihood that we will see the Bank of Canada taping its quantitative easing programme before very long. Um, RBA on the central bank fronts, Reserve Bank of Australia, they met yesterday, nothing particularly new out of that. So the official cash rate is still at its record low of just 0.10% and quantitative easing will continue to run uh, asset purchases at 5 billion Aussie dollars a month until early September before it's going to be tapered, as the bank previously announced, down to 4 billion until uh, once we get into November time. Um, that does assume we'll get a sharp improvement in the vaccine rollout, of course. And so far, it should be said that uh, that's been going extremely slowly. And with the big rise we've had in cases out there at the moment, it may be perhaps that uh, we're not going to see any kind of move on the interest rate front until, well, well into next year, if not the year after. Indeed, we take the central bank at face value. They still think we won't see rates going up until we get into 2024. Lastly, just mentioned the Bank of Ind India. Reserve Bank there is meeting on Friday and no change in rates there again at 4%.
with so many countries at the moment, it almost seems as if inflation is not an issue for the RBI currently. They're very much focusing upon supporting the real economy as they try to get through the COVID crisis like everyone else. Okay, then, I think that is probably it for me. Terry, you happy to conclude there? Um, Just that I would be cautious about looking for too much tapering of asset purchases or too much pulling in of expectations for a rate hike, because I think most of the central banks are going to be really concerned about removing support too soon uh, because the the outlook is just still very uncertain Mm -hmm. with the whole global pandemic. And although, you know, vaccine rollout's been pretty good, there are still, at least here, um, many adults who are reluctant to be vaccinated, and that slows our progress in combating the pandemic. Yeah, good point. So the vaccination is still very much key in many ways to the outlook as a whole, isn't it? Okie dokie. Thanks, Terry. Um, Well, let's finish it there then. So that's it for this week. On behalf of Terry and myself, thanks as always for listening. We'll be back next week. And in the meantime, all the key market moving data and events can be found listed and analysed in Econoday's super user friendly global economic calendar. We'll see you next time.